Y'all see that all right? It's conscience, but I separated it there for a reason. What does the word science mean? Knowledge, okay? And con is a Latin word, which means with. So conscience really means with knowledge. This isn't a subject you're going to hear talked about much from the pulpit. I'm not sure why, because it's an extremely important topic. The Bible really has a lot to say about it, and there's a lot of places where the term is used. Did you turn that on? Good for you. God bless you. Thank you. Lesson 10, part 1. Um, so I want to kind of go to the beginning here. Open your Bible, if you will, just to the first chapter in Genesis. Actually, it's Genesis 2 is where we want to start. And a lot of people don't make this connection, so it's important for us to make this connection. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Starting in 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of what? Knowledge. knowledge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's where it starts, guys. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, I'm not sure we'd even have this thing we call conscience. Now, I say that like that so that we're saying I'm not uh, theologically absolutely positive of that, but it seems to me that if they'd never eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they wouldn't have needed a conscience. They would have remained innocent and everything would have stayed innocent and they would have been pure. But they didn't. They ate of that tree. And so that's when our conscience was born. The knowledge of good and evil. And it's universal. It's not something that's confined to the Christian by any means. All human beings, all human beings are born with this simple little knowledge of good and evil. They'll go through an age of innocence when they're a child, but soon that innocence is over. In one of the earlier lessons we talked about the fact that a, a, a small child knows nothing of guilt and running around naked. They're, they're innocent, they're pure. They don't know nothing. That's not an embarrassment at all, but they don't get very old. Come boy, they're covering themselves up. You don't have to be taught that. It comes natural. And they know. They come to it quickly. They know. So this is something that that's we're, we're born with. I want to uh, turn over just a page and let's get to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read just a little bit. I'm going to read verses uh, 
6 through 11. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they made fig leaves together and made themselves coverings for themselves. <clears throat> And when they heard, and, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Uh, that always just astonishes me, but it also points to the, the reality of what's happened here. <laughs> Think about this. There are so many people in this world that spend their life hiding from God. And if they ever even acknowledge the presence of God, they're right back to where we were in, in, in lesson number three saying, don't even think about telling me what to do. I don't want anything to do with God. Hiding from God. <laughs> I can't imagine a more ignorant thing for a human being to do than to try to hide from God. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? My question to you is, is do you think God really didn't know where he was? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And you can't hide from God. God knows everything. And you... So then why did he say that? Why did he say to Adam, where are you? He wanted him to confess or come come forward. Exactly. Giving him a choice. Mm -hmm. Opening the door. Mm -hmm. You come to me. I, <laughs> and what does he say to each one of us? At some point in our life, and, and really doesn't have to be confined to once, he's going, where are you? Where are you? You've withdrawn yourself from me. Come on back. Let's talk. <laughs> and that's what he did here. Uh, <clears throat> then there's another little part here. He said, verse 10, So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And here's the important verse for this lesson. And he, God, said to him, who told you that you were naked? I'll introduce you then to the word called conscience. Who told, who told Adam that he was naked? Wasn't anybody else were there, was there? <laughs> Nobody there but him and Eve. So the conscience comes into being. Oh. I got myself a note here about that lesson 10. Has everybody got the answer sheets on that lesson 10 straight? If you haven't, some of you, and as a matter of fact, I guess in the whole printing, 
that you have um, the lessons were reversed. The reason that they were reversed is because when we reversed the order of the lessons, I, I decided uh, in, in reprinting this to put lesson 10 part two first. So that's where, where we are here and what we're calling lesson 10 part one. This used to be lesson 10 part two, but I, I struggled with it a long time and I finally came to the conclusion this is backwards. And the reason it's backwards and what is now lesson 10 part one, we're talking about the conscience and our conscience and how it relates to us as human beings and in our relationship to God. In what is now lesson 10 part two, we take that a little further and we deal with our conscience as we deal with the life around us and the people around us and the people in our lives and keeping a clear conscience before our fellow man. So that's why I reversed them. Somehow or another, the answer sheets didn't get reversed correctly. So, uh, let me see that little piece of paper again. If, you're, if your answer sheet for lesson 10, part one, uh, if, it be, if it begins with when we sin against our fellow man, then, then it's wrong. You need to reverse them. Lesson 10, part one, the answer sheet should, should start question one with 1 John 3, 21 to 22. And I apologize for that. I, 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 know, I know exactly what happened is that when we made the master copy for here at the church, we evidently didn't get those reversed. And uh, because several lots of copies have been made since these were printed, and they're and they're straight. So your copies, that that whole printing evidently was backwards. And I apologize for that. I want to go to Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. <coughs> In case there's any of you that don't know it, uh, if there's any portion of the Bible that, that you really need to commit to memory, and, or at least be extremely well acquainted with is the book of Romans, but especially these first four or five chapters. The first one, two, three chapters are vital. You really need to spend some time uh, in these first two or three chapters of Romans. Just read them again and again until you really kind of understand what's, what all is being said there. For one thing, you're gonna lead someone to the Lord you're gonna need these first few chapters of Romans because right up until Romans chapter 10 are things being said that are necessary for us to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All right, <clears throat> chapter two, verses 14 and 15. I'm, I'm gonna back up a little ways. I'm gonna start in verse 12. 
For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Why? goes right back to where we just were in Genesis and that's why I jumped from Genesis right up to here <clears throat> it says they are a law to themselves verse 15 who show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing so, so here, here in this vital part of the book of Romans, we see, first of all, Paul laying out what the conscience does and, and naming it as the conscience. In their conscience, they know right from wrong. And that's why it says right here in this area, so you're without excuse, old man, whoever you are. Because we know from the beginning the attributes of God. We see God all around us. We're without excuse. Our conscience bears witness. <clears throat> Again, I want to tell you that, that we understand, and we understand from those verses, that this is not confined to the Christian. This is not just about the Christian, but about this thing called conscience that God has given to us. A lot of people don't really recognize conscience as a gift, but it truly is. I'm going to read for a little bit from the lesson going right there at the top of that page, um, Lesson 10, Part 1. A clear conscience is essential to faith. Paul speaks of holding faith and a good conscience in 1 Timothy. When our conscience is guilty, our faith becomes weak and ineffective. We'll get into explaining that quite a lot as we go along here. A clear conscience is essential to having our prayers answered. The Apostle John said, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And so whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. <clears throat> Most of us would say, I want, to, I want to do, I want my life to live. I just had a counseling session this week with a person who, that was one of, one of the first and foremost thoughts. I want to do what's right in God's sight. I want. Where does that come from? It comes from that conscience that says, I want, I want to be right before God. I want my conscience to be clear. Now, that wasn't the words this person was saying, but that's what, that's what was meant. Can you see that? We have a clear conscience before God. Uh, a clear conscience is essential to good health. To have our conscience condemning us is like having a heavy weight on us all the time, living with guilt. And how many people are in our world that are 
their life was just a matter of suffering because they walk around with this burden of guilt on them. Their conscience is not clear. They've not yet carried everything to the Lord in prayer and believed that he's taken and forgiven that guilt. <clears throat> a clear conscience is necessary if we are to build true friendships, and that's what we'll get into a lot of next week. There will be times when we will offend and hurt people. If we want to keep their respect and friendship, we must make things right with them. Boy, that goes a whole lot to the closer the relationship, the more this becomes prevalent. Husbands and wives are hurting each other's feelings. In families, fathers and sons and brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and sons and so forth. We seem always, what's the old saying, we, we hurt the one we love. Sometimes it's because we, we take them for granted. And, uh, and, but here's the thing, if you learn about your conscience, because your conscience is going to be quick to condemn you. Well, let me use that door, convict you. We'll get into that in a little while. It doesn't condemn us. Satan's a condemner. But, but if your conscience steps in real quick and says, that wasn't right, that wasn't right, then we ought to be just as quick to correct that. A clear conscience is necessary for effective witnessing. If you have offended someone and you have never tried to make things right with them, you will find it impossible to witness effectively to them. You've got a guilty conscience before you with that particular person. It's going to be kind of hard to convince them about God's truth. Most important of all, a clear conscience is necessary in order to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. We must be right with God, and we must be right with our fellow man. Even the slightest accusation of our conscience will hinder our fellowship with the Lord. Um, I'll continue on, but I, I don't want to get too bogged down in this page. There's a whole lot here to cover. How does the conscience operate? Our conscience is the place where God expresses his will and his holiness. It is here that God shows us his mind regarding a matter our conscience discerns what God thinks about things, and once we know in our conscience what God's will is about a matter, we must obey. We have to learn to obey our conscience. Uh, I've got myself a note here that many in the counseling office are stuck right here. Uh, let me share the rest of that with you. Our conscience is like a window to our spirit through which God's light shines flooding our inner being with his light and truth. If we obey our conscience, the window becomes clearer and more transparent. If we do not obey our conscience and deal with the sin it condemns, then our conscience as a window will become dirty and clouded. As sin increases, the dirt and cloudiness increase until God's light can barely penetrate into our spirit. And and I can just tell you what's in that next paragraph. It's just really simply a human truth. The more you ignore what your conscience is telling you, the more your heart will become hardened. The more you get attuned to not paying attention to your spirit, to your conscience. 
it, it gets to a point where God's light can hardly shine through because you've been become so accustomed to shutting that voice out. Don't tell me what to do. To the point that a person can become so hardened against the, the voice of their conscience that their life becomes totally dark. No light can shine through. We'll get some more of that in a minute. Um, let's turn the page. I have here something that uh, was from a conversation that Billy Graham had. And uh, it was written down and published, and it's very, very good. Um, he talks about five things here. A seared conscience, a justifying conscience, a lying conscience, a weak conscience. Uh, and these are not in your book. So I'm just going to, I just want to share, share this with, it, with you. Billy Graham said, I am shocked by what doesn't shock me anymore. Seared conscience. One of the things that he was referring to and one of the parts, things that was part of this conversation is he was saying that on TV, there was a time when TV first came out, you would not have seen any nudity on TV. You certainly wouldn't have heard anybody cussing on TV. That'd kick them off the air real quick. But now what? Now, now we're in a, in a world where we see so much vulgarity in front of us, if no place else, certainly on our TV. <laughs> You can even look at some of the billboards that are around the country and they're, they're what can I say? Provocative. Provocative. Certainly not what they should be. So, so we become, and this is just kind of an example of how we can become hardened to these things to the point, well, I don't think anything of it anymore. We get so used to the cussing to the vulgar language, to the, the showing of flesh, that we don't even think anything about it anymore. And that's kind of the point here, and the point that Billy Graham's making, is that when that has happened to us, our conscience, the word he used, has become seared. I don't know how else to try to explain it. That's just kind of the way that, that he put it. And it says, he said, a seared conscience is aware of right and wrong, but it's not ashamed of wrong and not approving of what is right. It is the feeling side of conscience that's messed up. This is caused by repeated sin. Now listen to this, guys. Herein lies a definition of a sociopath. They know right from wrong. They just no longer feel anything. Sin doesn't bother them. And that is a true definition of a sociopath. They know that it's wrong to murder somebody or whatever other awful things that they can do. But it don't bother them anymore. Their conscience has been seared to the point that they basically don't have one. Next step, he calls 
what he calls a justifying conscience. Quoted from Isaiah 5.20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 23, who justify the wicked for a bribe. And here, this is Billy Graham now. Don't throw rocks at me. <laughs> he talks about pro-choice. And the terminology, it's my body. And Billy Graham says, no, it isn't about your body. It's about, a, it's about murdering another's body. You can't justify that. Our conscience should become awake in such things. So justifying conscience. And so that's what he's referring to, a conscience that was want to justify that which we by our own nature, by the conscience that lives within every human being, we want to justify wrong by saying it's this or that. And Billy Graham simply said, no, you can't go there. Well, our body's not even our body. Exactly. Much exactly. less the body that's inside of it. Yeah. It's the body that God's given us. And by the way, uh, he purchased it in Romans 12, exactly. 1, you know. And, and we belong to him and, and we're his. And, and so what we do with our body has a very definite effect on our relationship with God. All right. Then he talks about a lying conscience. <clears throat> he says a lying conscience is related very closely to both a seared conscience and a justifying conscience. A lying conscience, conscience excuses you when it shouldn't. A seared conscience doesn't feel it's wrong. A lying conscience says, I'm starting to think this is okay. Talk to some people that go to a nudist college. Well, they'll justify that all day long. It's okay. Same thing happens a lot of times when you've got someone that's found themselves addicted to pornography. Well, I'm not really hurting anything. Their conscience has justified what they're doing when they know deep in their heart and deep in their soul that it's wrong. A weak conscience. <laughs> this is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I won't turn there, but, but we, we could, but I don't want to take the time. But basically, this is where Paul is talking pretty much to Timothy, although this is in Corinthians. He's talking to his disciples. Paul's talking to his disciples about the fact that they've been doing a lot of uh, condemning of people that are eating meat offered to idols. And Paul's subject there is the conscience. <clears throat> he says, regarding the meat offered to idols, the idol is nothing. <laughs> There's really no such thing as, as other gods. So it's been offered to a piece of rock or stone or whatever it is, and that's really nothing. And so the meat is not defiled. And so to eat that meat, there's really, in reality, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but then you've got this thing called conscience. And so if, if a person's offered meat that has been offered to an idol, and this is what Paul is trying to say to them, He's saying, if their conscience tells them that it's wrong, then it's wrong. It's wrong for them. And if 
you want to change anything, then you change the truth so that they believe the truth rather than believing that which is not true. But Paul is saying to his, to his disciples, don't, don't be telling people to ignore their conscience. If their conscience says that it's wrong to eat meat offered to idols, then it's wrong for them. Leave them alone. You can go there and read it for yourself. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> now then, I want to back up to the top of this page too. Our conscience is limited by knowledge. How do we know what is right and wrong in God's sight? This is what I'll remind you that that's the counseling session that I just had. This was where this person was, is, is this. They wanted to know what's right in God's sight. My first comment to this person was, <laughs> you know. But taking it deeper, there was things going on in this person's life that, that pretty much her conscience had justified. She wasn't sure anymore if it was right or wrong. So knowledge becomes necessary. The fact that Adam and Eve, Eve ate of that knowledge, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, is certainly a beginning. But if we're going to be children of God, we really need to know the law and what the law says to us. <clears throat> One way we know is by what God says in his word. When God's word tells us a certain thing is right, then we know that it's right. If his word says that it is wrong, we know that it is wrong. There's a lot of things going on in our culture today that are wrong, and the, the world around us wants to justify it and call it okay. But we need to know that God's word's not interested too much in what the world thinks. <clears throat> Next paragraph. What does the Lord do? He begins to show us our sins one by one. He is gracious to us. He does not show us all of our sins at one time. He knows that this would be too discouraging to us. Instead, he reveals our sins to us one by one. Here is a wonderful truth. A sin in our life which is unknown to us does not hinder our communion with the Lord. If we obey what we know to be the will of God and forsake what we know to be condemned by God, we can enjoy perfect fellowship with him. The Bible says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To walk in the light means to be obedient to the light that we have. This does not, however, exempt us from seeking more light. An active conscience will certainly lead us to diligently seek him and to know him. And what's it saying? It's really, really saying that, that we all, we never get to a place or to a point where we don't need to be buried in God's word. We need to continually be learning because God will reveal to us more and more what's right and wrong. I'll share with you something along this nature uh, that's personal. Uh, for a long time, I have, uh, and well, let me take back maybe just in the last few years that it's become prevalent. Uh, I have argued against this thing of tearing down statues from our past and, and people being uh, all against having the rebel flag shown anywhere. And to me, it's been um, a battle because of it. That's our history, it's our heritage. Um, 
there's no one saying that I know of that are defending Jim Crow laws or any such thing, yet the fact that this country went through a civil war is a fact of, of life. And so I've defended that to the point that here, many of you are familiar with my little old pickup. I got a 30-year-old pickup and I've owned it for 20 years. I still drive now. I don't have any intention of getting rid of it. I expect I'll have that little pickup the rest of my life. The hood ornament was plastic and popped off, which in the center of the grill, the grill ornament, I guess it should call it, popped off of that little old pickup years ago. Somewhere along the line, I found a little metal uh, rebel flag, little, not this, not that big. <clears throat> and so I wired it onto, onto my grill. And look at the front of my pickup, you see this little rebel flag. I'm going to take it off. And I'll tell you why I'm going to take it off. Because it's offending other people. And you know, I think it shouldn't. I'd argue the point all day on one hand. On the other hand, my conscience isn't clear. Because I know that even though I see nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with displaying that little flag that portrays a part of our American history, if it's offending someone as a child of God, then my conscience is telling me that's not good. And there's scripture also that tells us that we ought not to be offensive. That we need to. So what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, is I'm going to obey my conscience. It's not that I think there's anything wrong with that little piece of metal. But I'm going to take it off my pickup because my conscience tells me that I'm offending someone and I don't have any business to do that. Next section there does not do not try to silence or overrule your conscience. Uh, I don't know if I want to read all of that or not. No, uh, we need we got another page to get to. Uh, you see there in that in that center section, the number one and the number two, they argue with their conscience, their conscience uh, saying that a person may try to convince himself or herself that that something's all right and seems to be so reasonable so they'll argue with their conscience number two they'll try to ease their conscience by doing a lot of good works and let me tell you that that's pretty prevailing in the church that we we have a lot of christian people that are really going about being busy doing things that they think, well, please, let me share with you, the real definition of the word religion is what people do that they think will appease God. Okay. So we've got, we've got people that are really busy doing things that look good, but if they be honest with their conscience, they know that there's things that are wrong and they're not dealing with those things. They're just simply trying to override that by trying to make themselves look good. And the last one down there says, we must avoid Satan's condemnation. In seeking to maintain a clear conscience, we must be aware of the fact that Satan can attack our conscience. Boy, can he ever. He does this by accusing us and condemning us. He puts thoughts like these into our mind. You have failed again. That is all you ever do. You are nothing but a failure. 
and that is all you will ever be. God cannot love anyone like you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Is there anyone that can deny that, that Satan does that? He does it to us all the time. There's, there's no one in this room that has at one time or another had Satan attacking them uh, with words of that kind. We need to understand and be clear. It's not got to do just with our conscience, but with everything to do in our Christian walk is that condemnation, that kind of condemnation, you'll never, does not come from God, does not come from within our spirit where God presides, and it does not come from our conscience. Those are lies from Satan. Okay, we get to the final page here. I won't go there, but uh, in 2 Kings chapter 22, there's an important story for you uh, to read sometime. When you get an opportunity, you might want to mark that down over uh, in 2 Kings chapter 22. And what's happening there is that the, the children have been brought back from captivity, and uh, they're trying to rebuild the temple, and... Uh, They've been without the word of the Lord for a long, long time. Seventy years in captivity. And well before that, they had abandoned the word of God. And that's one of the reasons why they were allowed to be carried off into captivity. And they've been back here now for a good while. And, uh, and I forget which Ezra I think, but I'm not sure. Um, but one of the guys that was in charge of this, a, a man working in the temple area, found the scroll, and we call the book. And it was there what they had of the Old Testament. It was, it was the writings of Moses and, and a few others. And he brought it to him. He said, look what I found. So the man began to take that into the temple when the people would gather and began to read from it conscience became awake and alive and they began to go praise God they began to get the word of God down into them their conscience they began to to discard the things that their conscience was telling them were wrong because now they had the word that, that solidified that certain things are wrong and the big thing that was wrong at that point in time was a whole lot of, of idol worship it was Violent. So what's being said here is that, that there's a way to fix a malfunctioning conscience, and that is to get in the Word of God, get in the Word of God, stay there. And, uh, you know, there are so many good studies, there's so many different subjects that we, it don't make any difference where we're at and what we're doing as long as we're doing, as long as we're reading God's Word. If you're not in God's Word every day, at least a little, you ought to be. Maybe pick yourself a good, uh, there are several, what's, uh, Charles Stanley has a really good daily devotional. Our Daily Bread's a good daily devotional. Uh, and almost all of them have a, a series of 
scriptures that you can use there that'll put you on reading through the Bible in a year. I'm back to that. I'll share with you that uh, I've been doing that for a number of years. Last year, 2019, was the only year I've taken off from that in a long, long time. Reading through the Bible every year is a really good practice, but one of the things that I had come to, I came to the conclusion toward the end of this last, or the year before, toward the end of 2018, I was thinking, you know what? I, I'm not studying. I'm making it a point to sit here and read these three or four or five chapters a day, but I'm just reading it. It wasn't sinking in. It wasn't being applied. I, I just was reading for the sake of reading. So I decided in, for 2019, I was just going to take a year off and not do that, and I didn't. <laughs> Problem is, I didn't. I, I'm studying all the time, guys. I want you to know that. I truly am. I'm uh, like on this, this thing of consciousness. How many times have I taught? this particular lesson that you spoke. <laughs> I don't even know, multitude of times. But whenever I'm gonna teach it fresh, I go back over everything. I look up new things. I, I go to commentaries I didn't have before. I do whatever I can to make sure that whatever I'm gonna to present to a class is fresh and new. So I'm studying all the time. But I'm studying for you, see. There's a difference between and, and a lot of teachers struggle with this because almost everything that they read, their mind is converting it over to teaching instead of applying it personally. So as I reached the end of 2019, I realized that, okay, I took a year off from reading through the Bible, but I wasn't doing a whole lot of personal application kind of studying. And, and, we ought to be honest. I've gotten away from it. I'm studying all the time, but it wasn't for me. So a friend of mine he had a Bible, and he wasn't using, didn't like it, hadn't used it. Paperback, brand new, NIV version, which I'm not wild about, chronological Bible. And I, well, that's different, and there's a real good perspective there. In the course that I'm trying to develop, I'm, I'm developing a second course to follow up from foundations. I had had it years ago and taught it for a while, not long, a couple of years. Uh, that has to do with, with learning how to study the Bible. Uh, breaks the Bible. It's, it's uh, in, in college, they'll, they'll call it a survey of the Old and New Testaments, uh, breaking down things by chronological order and by other different ways of breaking it down. <clears throat> so I thought, well, that'll give me a whole new perspective. And so that's what I'm starting on, and I can tell you that in the last few days, because it's, it's taken me up to Genesis chapter 10, and at Genesis chapter 10, it changes to the book of Job, because that's about when the book of Job would have occurred, is in that era before Abraham even beginning to get, beginning from there, from the descendants of Noah, and it's beginning to name these people, and from this line is going to come Abraham. Uh, but in there is about where it's considered that Job was written. So I've been in Job, and I've been in Job in the NIV, which paraphrases, but it's been good for me because I've, I've seen things here in Job's argument 
and in the things that those guys tell Job that have just woke me up. Wow. One of the things that, that, that I share with you that it's done for me is it, is it helps me realize how extremely intelligent these people were. I think, I think about America and our, our American Indians, and, um, and you think about the civilization over there in the Middle East uh, 4,000 years ago, and, um, and they, were, they were extremely advanced. These people were wise. You read what some of these guys said to Job, and it's like they, they were off base, and Job sets them straight that they are off base, but by the same token, there's wisdom in these So anyway, I simply said that to say this. My conscience began to bother me about not reading my Bible right, so I'm doing it again. <clears throat> Here are some ways we can distinguish between Satan's work and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Satan's accusations are rambling and continuous. The Holy Spirit enlightens us so that we can clearly see our faults. Satan's accusations are designed only to cause us to suffer and to tear us down. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to build us up. He shows us our sins so that we may confess, forsake them, and walk in the ways of God. Satan's accusations keep coming back even though we have confessed the sin. That's an important thing for you to remember. If the conviction is from the Holy Spirit and we confess that sin to God, he forgives us, and there is no further conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding that matter. Sometimes Satan attacks the believer by trying to make him believe that he can never be forgiven for certain sins that he has committed, which is certainly the story of where I was for a number of years. To believe this is to believe a lie. No sin in the world is so great that it cannot be forgiven. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. When God says all, he means all. <laughs> if you feel Satan is attacking you, resist him in the name of the Lord Jesus. Claim the mighty victory of Calvary. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the final part there is about keeping a sensitive conscience. It's really just this, guys. Be aware of the fact that you do have a conscience. And it is a gift from God. And like I said, and that's me talking, I want you to understand that. When I said that I'm not sure we'd even have a conscience if Adam and Eve had never sinned, I don't know that. That's just my opinion. My opinion says I don't think there would have been a whole lot of need for one if we'd have stayed pure in thought and mind and so forth. Um, but as an omniscient God knows and knows everything, he evidently knew that this was going to happen when he created us, so he put that conscience in us. Another thing that I, I say a lot and I believe with my whole heart is that while there are maybe many, many ways that God speaks to people. And God does speak to people. I've never experienced the audible voice type of speaking. Some have, and they say so to the point that I'm certainly not going to argue with them. How do I know? Just because I haven't experienced it. But I know full well, 
that God speaks to us in our conscience. If you, if, if you want to test it, just begin to think about doing something wrong and hear God speak through your conscience saying, no, don't do that. No, 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 don't do that. That's not right. Your conscience speaks. It's God speaking to you through your conscience. And another place where God will speak to us, the place that I call my heart. You're in, in the heart and soul of a person. I often say to people, if I, if I should ask you where you are, where would you point? Where are you? Are you in your brain? Is that where you exist? Somewhere in here is where I am. And each of us intuitively knows, and, and that's what Paul says in Romans, we intuitively know that this part of us, that's somewhere in there, is that part of us which is designed to live forever. We'll, why, why do we even have thoughts of life after death? Because that part of us knows, intuitively knows, that this is as a living being, and it's not my body. I'm living in the body, but I'm in there. It's in there, guys, in that what I'll call then the heart of the human being. It's there where God will really speak to you. He'll, he'll talk to you. And not necessarily just about things that are right and wrong. He'll talk to you about what he wants you to do and where he wants you to go. He'll, he'll tell you. <laughs> There's, and I, I use the term God spoke to me. I'm careful about using it. But in 2015, I hadn't been in God's service for a good long while. The church, I've got a couple minutes. I'll just quickly run this by you. Uh, the church where I was uh, assistant to the pastor for almost seven years uh, would never ordain me. They wouldn't ordain me because of my pastor. Cool. Okay. I think they were wrong about that, but they never did. And at the time, I had finished college. I finished. I, I graduated from Moody Bible Institute. Uh, I had already had several years of being in God's service. I'd been running a successful uh, jail ministry for a long time. I had opened and run a halfway house for five years where we had guys coming out of prison. I had established several, several other outreach ministries, one of them being a food and clothing ministry that was vibrant. But they wouldn't ordain me. So when Brother Don died and the church began to fall apart, and that was an ugly thing to witness. The church didn't fall apart. There was no place for me to go. I wanted to stay in full-time Christian work, but to me that meant going to work at another church. And I knew from what Brother Don had said to me a number of times, but once was after his heart attack, between his serious heart attack and the time that he died, he said to me, I'm really proud of what I did with you, he says, you've made me proud. He said, he said, I saw in you that God had his hand on you. And he said, even though the elders fought with me the whole time, he said, I'm glad what I did with you. 
They still didn't entertain me. So when, when he died and the church fell apart, I went back driving the truck. Let me tell you, if you don't stay close to God, one of the things, and for you young ladies, I'll say this to you. If you don't stay in church, if you don't continually be around people that are also loving the Lord, if you don't continually try to learn and grow, you'll slide in the other direction. I started driving a truck again, which is what I'd, been, I'd done most of my life up to that time. And I'm color me gone. <laughs> you said somebody want to go color you here or whatever. Or you had been colored gone. There used to be an old terminology. And so I'd be gone on Sundays. As a matter of fact, many, many trucking companies, uh, loads, the trucks leave on Sunday, even if they got home for the weekend. On Sunday they're out, got to make Monday morning delivery halfway across the United States. So I wasn't in church. Carried a Bible with me for a long time, but over the years, I read it less and less. I never stepped away from God. I don't want to ever give you that impression, but I, I wasn't doing what a Christian ought to be doing. I wasn't staying close. I just was out there. <clears throat> and one day, knowing that I'm a Christian, one of the guys that I worked with at Mead Truck and one of the other drivers, his son got arrested, was young, got arrested for very serious crime. He's still in prison. He's now 20, no, he's, he's got to be about 19 now. Uh, but anyway, he was in the juvenile center and this man came to me and told me about his son and asked me if I would go visit with him and minister to him. When I walked through the doors into that juvenile center, right past where they take everything out of your pockets and check you for metal and all that stuff, right past that security exam, I'm walking into that place and God spoke to me and he said, this is where you belong. This is, your, this is where you belong. And so I've been going back ever since. But see, God speaks to you. And that's one of the times when I can say that I clearly heard, I clearly heard God speak to me. That's not something I just dreamed up in my mind. I walked through there and just as clear as a bell, God said to me, this is where you belong. It's time for me to close. Next week we'll talk about our conscience further and how it has, what it has to do with our relationships with one another and how to keep our relationships open and that our conscience really talks to us about that. Um, do you know uh, in, in the letters of Paul beginning with Romans through to the end of 2nd Corinthians I'm sorry beyond that clear uh, up to, to Titus I guess but in the writings of Paul Paul uses the term one another 58 times 58 times in those, in those pages, Paul uses the term one another. It's a really, really, really important part of our, our walk with God is to maintain this relationship one with another. And our conscience does definitely speak to us in those relationships and tell us when 
wrong and uh, not, not to do something. So that's what we'll be in next week.